Would you pray with me this morning? Fathers, we turn our attention to what you have shown us about yourself and your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would cause us to see with great insight. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would cause us to perceive with wisdom and understanding. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would cause us to desire with great longing. And Father, I pray that as you show us the Messiah, as you reveal to us your plan of redemption, yes, for the world, but most assuredly for us in this room, Lord, for me, for every individual in this room, Father, I pray that we would respond with gratitude, with acceptance, with faith, with belief. Lord, for those already belonging to you, that assurance would be ours today in greater measure and confidence to face whatever may come, whatever this world may bring, for we are certain of our King. Father, I pray you'd make the telling of the story of your Son to be rich and meaningful and powerful and life-changing for us today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You ever find yourself in the beginning or middle of a movie and realize that you're just lost? I mean, you don't really know what this is about. You don't get it. You don't get what the characters are supposed to be doing. You don't know what their motivation is. You don't really understand the storyline. And maybe it's made much worse because you realize you're not at the beginning. You're somewhere in the middle. It's a sequel somewhere, and, and the whole thing just doesn't make sense. So you can't get into it at all. I remember several years ago, we're trying to get Cecilia into the Star Wars story with us. You know, by now, there are about 17 of them been made, and we're trying to get her engaged and interested in it. We're watching one. I can't remember which one it was. And you know, finally, she just gives up on it. Like, I don't get this. I don't get this. It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's, it's there where you need an origin story. I mean, you got to figure out who's who and what they're supposed to be about and what the whole aim of this whole tale really is. And that's why it's so important for us to not skip somewhere to the middle, to maybe our more uh, familiar parts or to our most favorite parts, but look at the beginning, the origin of Christ, so that we understand exactly God's big story. And we understand the central character in that big story, His Son and our Savior Jesus, how He came to be, what He came to do, and exactly how He does it. And so this morning, I want to introduce to you what I consider to be the ultimate origin story in the Bible. And I'm going to unfold this story in eight short acts, eight acts of revelation, where God says to us, this is my plan. This is my story. This is my son. This is your Savior. Our text today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. You can use one of those pew Bibles if you like. You can find it there, and you can also read on the screen behind me. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Unlike the gospel account in Luke, the perspective of the birth story is really through the lens of Joseph in the Gospel of Matthew and what he saw and perceived and how he responded to it. And so again, thinking of these acts, consider Act 1, God's mysterious way. God didn't have to bring about the salvation of the world in this manner, but he did. This is how God exactly chose to do it. The entry into the world of the eternal living word, one eternally begotten of the Father, not created, always existent, pre-existent, and co-equal with the Father, comes into the world in this way. And this backstory is critical for at least these reasons. And I'd encourage you to write these down as you think through these. At least these reasons why this origin story matters so much. The First of all, is it, it validates Jesus' claim and the Scripture's claim that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the promised one of God, the means by which God will save anyone and the only means by which God will save anyone. He's the promised Messiah. Some of these details are critical to the story. For in this account of Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 1, we see how Jesus is able to fulfill that claim of being in the line of David. That's the line of his father, Joseph. 2 Samuel 7.16, the prophet Nathan made this promise to David and to his offspring forever. He said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. And obviously this wasn't just an earthly throne because by the time of Jesus' birth, it had been a long time since anyone from David's lineage had sat on any sort of throne in Israel. But Jesus will fulfill that promise. Or the promise of Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. It also reveals the unique personhood of Jesus. We need to go back to the beginning to see that Jesus is a human. He was born the way humans are born. He has a mom. He has a physical birth. He's an infant, frail and weak. And all those challenges to any infant would be Jesus' challenges. So when we see the threat of, of Herod in the coming chapters and we see the threat of, of potential death, no, that's real. If the sword of one of Herod's soldiers were to strike Jesus, he would die. He's, a, he's an infant, but he's not just a human infant. We see something unique about his personhood, how God brought him into the world by his own action. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But ultimately, the backstory is critical because it declares the great purpose of Jesus. A lot of people have ideas about who Jesus is today. I mean, you'll hear people say, well, Jesus is to me this, or my Jesus does this, or that's not how I see Jesus, but Jesus tells his own story. The Scriptures give his own purpose and primary to those, central to those, indispensable to everything God intended to do in the world was this through Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. There are many things that people need, but the great need, the only need that's eternal, that has eternal cause and effect, is sin. To be delivered from that, that which separates us from God, 
That which ruins our relationships, that which destroys us personally, sin, that's the remedy that we need, and that's what Jesus came to give. He came to save his people from their sins. Now let's get back to the story for a moment. The text says that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Now, that's not quite married, but it's far more than engaged. It's not a terminology that we use today. It's not a system that we have in place today. But a betrothal was something very significant. There was a legal commitment in place. There was a legal pledge already made. In, in fact, to break a betrothal would require a divorce. And when we know the seriousness and the difference between our modern concept of simply being engaged and first century Jews being betrothed with the descriptions already in this passage. Joseph has already referred to as Mary's husband. And to end this, as Joseph considered doing, was divorce. And the only thing that would make it legitimate to end it would be unfaithfulness. So betrothal is very serious. Typically, a, a young woman would be betrothed to a man. She would spend the next year still living in her parents' home. And when that period of waiting ended, she would leave her parents' home. She would be joined to that man. They would come together physically after their marriage, and they would be a new family. And now, Joseph's world, Mary's world, thrown into upheaval. Because Joseph discovers something about Mary's condition and let's just say he didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, what's he going to do now? What's his response going to be? And the language of the text doesn't suggest that Mary was trying to hide anything when it says that this was discovered. What it simply means is it couldn't be hidden anymore. This is a real physical birth with real physical symptoms, and there's evidence to this. And Joseph discovers this, and what a crushing blow to him it must have been. We know something of Joseph. We know Joseph was a just man, which typically is a reference to how he keeps the law of God, how he faithfully follows God himself, a good man. And he knew he had never been with Mary. But all the evidence suggests that someone had his bride-to-be pregnant. But as far as he knows, not carrying his child but we know the truth of the story that Mary had not been unfaithful. We knew this was God's doing. We knew this was what God's intention was. And we refer to this as a virgin birth. But it's a bit of a misnomer. Obviously, there was a virgin birth, and that's certainly true. But what's most amazing about the story is the virgin conception. That she could come to be with child and be a virgin. And so Mary's miraculous conception becomes the next act in the story. You know, as far as we know about Jesus' birth, which we'll hear a bit about tonight at our Christmas Eve service, when Jesus was born, he was born in an ordinary sort of way. Now, I'm not saying people were born in ordinary places like mangers or stables. Conditions and all that notwithstanding, his birth was ordinary, as all babies' births are. But what's profoundly unexpected, miraculous, unprecedented even, is how he was conceived. How did he come to be? And remember in this story, this turmoil that Joseph is facing, that Mary had information that Joseph didn't. And it's not just as if Mary could pick up the phone and say, Joseph, let me explain. Or it's not as if they were just sitting on the sofa together one evening and Joseph says, hey, what's up with this? Well, let's talk it through. They're separated. They're in two different places. She's in her family's home and he's far away. And he's trying to determine what to do. But Mary knew certain things. Remember from Luke chapter 1? Starting in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. 
And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And that's a statement to her character, to the sort of person that God considered Mary to be. She's greatly troubled at this saying and trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Why greatly troubled? Wouldn't you be if you had an angelic messenger come and speak to you? If you had the appearance of glory right there in front of you? The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary, in a great statement of faith, responds, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. One of the great statements of faith you find in all of Scripture, I'm the servant of the Lord. Whatever the Lord wills, whatever he requires, whatever he demands of me, I'm here to serve him. And the angel departs. Now, this miraculous conception is essential to the rest of the story, so stay with me here for a moment. Again, it's not just superfluous info. It's not something just to make us go, wow, that's pretty cool. Man, I think that's interesting. No, it's critical to the whole story. It's, it's critical to the, the hope that we have that one day we can stand before God and be forgiven, that there is a place in eternity made for us, secured by Christ. It all hinges on the reality of this story, the story of redemption through Jesus, born of a virgin. First of all, it highlights the supernatural. The account of Jesus is nothing if not supernatural in nature. I mean, the whole story of Jesus, if we were telling it all today, would be bracketed by two great impossibilities. A virgin's womb and an empty tomb. And all of that demonstrates the work of God. Not explainable in human terms. The supernatural work of God. On one end of his life is the supernatural conception and birth. On the other, the supernatural resurrection and ascension to God's right hand. And we have faith in the authenticity of Jesus being exactly who God says he is because of the supernatural work of the Father. It also reveals in Jesus' coming our inability to save ourselves. I mean, think of it this way. We could not generate a redeemer from among us. We couldn't raise one up. There's no one among us that we can say that person can save us. This solution will work. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah told us. But he's laid on him the iniquity of us all. None of us could be a sin bearer because we have our own sin to bear. None of us could offer forgiveness because we all need forgiveness. None of us have the power to take on the sins of humanity on ourselves and give back grace. Savior has to come from the outside. In Luke's introduction, as Gabriel speaks to Mary, he reminds us that the work of the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. The language is parallel to the language of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters at creation. The same terminology, overshadowing, hovering. In the same way the Holy Spirit was instrumental in creating the world that we live in, now the Holy Spirit is going to be instrumental in the means of a new creation. 
a, a new world. The virgin conception was necessary so that Jesus would not inherit our sin, not our sin nature, not our original sin. He's free from it. He can set us free from it. And he's not just free from sin. He's the root of a whole new humanity. This is what the epistles tell us. Later on in the New Testament, we have this great revelation unfolding of who Christ is, that Christ entered into humanity to remake us. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He reverses the curse of Adam that falls on all mankind. He becomes for us a new Adam that if we place our faith in him, he satisfies God's demand for righteousness. He takes on our sins. He conquers death for our sake, and he gives us life. When we think of the birth of Christ coming into the world, he didn't come into the world to make it better. He came into the world to make it new and to make every person who puts their faith in him new, a new creation. In so doing, the virgin conception and birth displays God's saving initiative. God did this. God invaded time and space, and he didn't ask Mary's permission. He didn't say to Mary, Mary, if this is okay with you, I've got a thought. Work with me here. I know it's a little off the wall. But he said to her, this is what's going to happen. This is what I intend to do. He acts decisively to save his people. In the incarnation of Christ, God, in great mercy, looks on a world that is irreparably broken, irreparably in its own strength, healed only by the work of, of God's intervention, and he does it. He fulfills his promises to mankind given in the Old Testament that we call prophecies. He fulfills his own character and nature who delights in saving us. He displays who he is and his goodness towards us by making us his own. He's carrying out a plan and a promise to redeem, to make all things new. And I threw this in just for bonus so you could talk this out with the kids today when you go going for lunch. It unveils the hypostatic union. So that's for you kids. That's my Christmas present for you to unwrap this morning. Hypostatic union, in simple terms, simply means that Jesus Christ is both God and man. Fully divine, fully human. This is a theological term, but it's rich with meaning. In, in its essence, it means this. In hypostasis, that's the Greek word for subsistence. So think about it in terms of your personal existence. Jesus combines two subsistences. He's not half man, half God. He's not sometimes God and sometimes man. He's not 90, 10, or 80, 20. You get the picture. He is fully God and fully man together. His full humanity is evident to us in the Scriptures because of his birth. Mary's a real woman, gives birth to a real baby in real time and space, real witnesses. And his deity is evident in the fact that this is not by Joseph. This is not by the normal, ordinary means that babies come into the world, but by the act of God. Now, back to the story. So you've got this birth that's coming, and it's evident, and, and no one can deny it. So Joseph has a righteous dilemma here. And I hope you will feel for Joseph a little bit. I hope you won't dismiss his thoughts. You know, sometimes we read these stories through quickly, and we're so familiar with the story that we lose a little bit of the real human drama in it. I mean, Joseph has a legitimate dilemma here for a second. He's a righteous man, and he wants a righteous wife. And he's a God-fearing man and a law-keeping man, and the law dictates certain consequences for what he sees here. I mean, if Mary had been unfaithful to him before they were even married, 
what kind of woman was she really? She's not who I thought she was. She's not the sort of person that I thought she was. I mean, can you imagine his dreams and his hopes and his expectations are all devastated? In fact, in every moral, emotional, and legal way, he was right to plan the end to this. It was the right thing to do. But Joseph was also a merciful man. Much to Joseph's credit, if we wanted to spend some time with a good character study here, there's plenty of, there's plenty of basis for it. Joseph was in the right, but he didn't want to crush Mary. He didn't want to humiliate Mary. He didn't want to flex his right for divorce. With a broken heart, you can imagine, he just wanted to put this to rest. He wanted to take his pain and walk away from it, but not causing her any unnecessary pain. How miserable he must have been as he considered this. And the language itself, the tenses and all of that really indicate he'd made up his mind. This is what I'm going to have to do. Verse 19 of chapter 1 says, Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. But Joseph also was not a rash man. And instead of acting quickly, instead of reacting and going with his emotions, instead of going with the legal and moral, I mean, moral and emotional ground that he stood on, he sleeps on his decision. Well, how do you know he slept on his decision? Apparently, he was asleep in, the, in his dreams, the angel appeared. He's wrestling with the pain, the implications about what he's about to do, but as he considered these things, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, let me just pause and interject this thought just for a moment, because I don't want any of, this, any of the parts of the story to become so mundane and routine that you miss the wow moments. Man, stop there. That's, that's important. That's huge. In fact, let me do it this way. Let me do it by way of a poll. How many of you have ever had an experience where an angel appeared to you and spoke to you by name? Now, I'm not saying this is overwhelming evidence because there are other people. I see one hand. Thanks, Deacon. You guys have to talk to Deacon about that experience a little bit later. Now, I'm not saying that we represent all of humanity, but what I am saying is this. When you see angels appearing and talking to people, that is a rare and momentous occasion. This is not God's normal way of communicating himself, revealing himself, directing us. You want to hear God speak, as you've heard me often say, pick up his word and read it, and ask the Holy Spirit to direct you as you read it. When God sends a messenger, he's doing that in a way that's necessary in that moment because it's so profound it's so counterintuitive. It's so unique, the information he's about to bring, that we probably wouldn't hear it, receive it, understand it any other way. So just as he gave Mary an angelic message, Gabriel himself delivers it. Now in a dream, an angel speaks to Joseph. And in that moment, we see the goodness of God on both a personal scale and a cosmic scale. Because in this providential intervention... God working behind the scenes to accomplish his plans and purposes. God working in ways that are true and profound. Now, what may seem to us is this. Joseph changed his mind. He goes to bed that night. He thinks about it. He says, I can't do it. But his decision is secondary. What's primary is the intervention of God. His providential hand is doing this and working. And on a personal level, he's giving great relief to Joseph. Can you imagine the heaviness, the weightiness, the sorrow that Joseph was bearing that night as he goes to bed. 
This is not what he wanted. Not for himself and not for Mary. This is not the future he anticipated or planned for. This was the end of every dream he had with her and the two of them together. And God intervenes. The angel assures Joseph that things are not as they seem. Mary is who he had thought her to be. Joseph, she is the Mary that you chose. She is blessed and highly favored of the Lord. She is unique among women. We don't worship her as evangelical Christians, as Protestant Christians. But we certainly can recognize her uniqueness in Scripture that God chose her. God chose this young woman, blessed and highly favored of the Lord. No, Joseph, she is who you thought she was. She is the one that drew you with her goodness, with her innocence, with her purity, with her godliness. God gave Joseph a gift that night. A gift. His appearance was a gift. Can you imagine the, the relief? Not just relief, not just the weight being left, let off, but the absolute joy now, personally, just to Joseph. Be Joseph for a moment. God gave Joseph a great gift that night. No, Joseph, this is what's happened, and this is what I want you to do. He gave him revelation of the mystery. Revelation of this mystery. Mary's condition is not a result of her sin, Joseph. Mary's condition is a miracle of God's Spirit. This is huge. This is huge. And on a personal scale, Joseph receives this gift, but on a grand scale, we all do. He tells Joseph emphatically, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. Don't be afraid of public perception. Don't be afraid of people who don't know the whole story who are going to be judging you and evaluating you and throwing their 10 cents in. Don't be afraid of how things are going to play out from here. Don't be afraid of what's coming next. Joseph, fearlessly take her just as you planned. Fearlessly marry her. In that moment, this angel, really God through this angel, relieves Joseph of any of those fears and also gives him his perfect assurance of his place in God's sovereign plan to save. This is what I am doing. This is what I'm doing through you. This is what I'm going to do with your family. I'm sending Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The next part of the act goes to the prophet. For as the angel spoke, he uses scripture. He uses scripture from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah. We dipped our toes into Isaiah for several weeks before coming to this passage. He says, This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the prophet's true word. He's the fulfillment of all these messages that were given by me to my people throughout the centuries. He is the true word of the prophet. From Isaiah's prophecies, the true identity of Jesus begins to emerge in Matthew's gospel. We get the foreshadowing of them in the Old Testament, and we get the unveiling of them in the New. Jesus is the virgin's son in, in Isaiah 7.14. Jesus is the great light that shines in the darkness in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus is the 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus is the promised shoot from the stump of Jesse. In Isaiah 11, verse 1, that will grow up and bless the nations. He's the servant who will bring justice to the nations in Isaiah 42. He's the light to the nations, bringing salvation to the ends of the earth in Isaiah 49, verse 6. And as we saw in Isaiah 53, he is the suffering servant who will bear the sins of many. This is Jesus, the true word of the prophet. So as Joseph hears this, Joseph goes to bed with his mind made up but with his heart broken. God intervenes and gives him a message of great grace, revealing great glory, testifying of the Scriptures, reminding him, Joseph, those things you have read and heard, those things that you have known and trusted in, this is Jesus revealed to you. The response is faith. By the way, there's a sidebar lesson to faith here. There's a definition implicit in this encounter about what faith is. Faith is not blind. Faith is not going off of nothing. Faith is going off of something certain. Faith is acting in accordance with what you believe, and what you believe has deep roots. Faith has its reasons. And so faith is a response of Joseph, and his faith is great. In fact, there's only one fear left for a faithful man to have after what he heard from God. And that only fear is the fear of disobedience. The, the only fear that a faithful follower of Christ ought to have is the fear of disobeying God, disappointing God. Not disappointing people. Not fear of man or what man thinks we ought to do or how we ought to respond. A person of faith's only legitimate fear is God that I would disregard or disobey or disappoint you. And so when Joseph wakes up, he acts. He takes action. The Bible says he took his wife. Decisively, he moves. Faith, as James said, without works is dead. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is a decision born into action. And that's what he did. He stands up, he acts, he takes his wife. But as an interesting Part of the story, in radical self-denying restraint and in conformity to Isaiah 7.14, to make sure that it's carried out literally and exactly in every way, Isaiah 7.14, which says, the virgin shall conceive, that's happened, and the virgin shall bear a son, he abstains from relations with her until after Jesus was born. And what does that do for us? And what does that do for every generation since? It makes perfectly clear all the claims of Jesus. This is the virgin one. He doesn't muddy up the subject. He doesn't allow any dispute to come into play. He is not with her until after Jesus is born. As a little aside for you with Roman Catholic friends and family, the Bible does not teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. Mary has other children. Jesus has siblings born to Mary and Joseph. And they're not all conceived the same way that Jesus was. They all came about the normal way. And you can talk about that later. That's my gift to you parents at Christmas. I introduce this subject. <laughs> Kids, I give you hypostatic union. Parents, I give you the birds and the bees. But there's more, perhaps, than meets the eye in what takes place next. 
It's Joseph who obediently names Jesus. Now, that may seem like not much to us, inconsequential, just a little detail. But in naming Jesus, legally, he is adopting Jesus. He's declaring that this is my son. I have responsibility over him. He is mine. I'm claiming him. I'm I'm owning him. Scripture says, through Joseph, Jesus will be counted as the son of David. It's an important part of the story. For Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, for him to be that righteous one who will sit on the throne of David, but differently, not just over a small kingdom in the Middle East, but over the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever, he must be from the line of David. And now he is. He fits the prophecy. The next great part of the story unfolding is our living hope. Because all the story is pointing to this, our living hope. What's in a name? Two names are given here, by the way. Two names are given here. Emmanuel, the promise, the prophecy, Emmanuel. The scriptures that you've heard read today already, the words that Zach shared with you, the songs that we have sung today already, remind us of Emmanuel. Emmanuel tells us that God in Christ is with us. He has come into the world. It tells us that we're not abandoned. It tells us that God has not forsaken us. It tells us that God is not going to treat us as our sins deserve. God is not going to leave us to our own end. He's not going to leave us in darkness. He's not going to leave us in an ever-worsening cycle of destruction and despair. He will not do that. God is with us. He has visited us. But Jesus tells us even more. Jesus tells us that God is with us, and He is for us. He is for us. He didn't come simply to teach us. He didn't come simply to set an example for us. He he didn't come to just temporarily relieve us of stress and difficulties and those dastardly old Romans and their government. He came to save us. He came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He did it in person, in the flesh. For those of you who are believers, you know the rest of the story, how he would do this. He didn't do this by decree. He did this by death. He took our judgment for us. He came into the world to save sinners like us. Jesus tells us that God in Christ is for us. At the root of every human problem, at the core of all human suffering, at the basis, the reason for every severed relationship that exists with God is sin. It's our sin. And Jesus came to save us from that. Obviously, all of its effects. As Isaiah said, he bore our sorrows. He took our griefs. He took the effects of our sin by taking sin itself. Jesus came to save us from that. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So God saved us to purify us, to make us new, but also saved us for the future. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came, He appeared to prepare us for His next appearance. He revealed himself in this great origin story, Christ on the scene, 
was so that we would be ready when Christ appears on the scene again. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. He came into this world to save for himself a people forever so that when he comes back to this world, all those people who belong to him will eagerly receive him and enjoy him forever and ever. In this origin story, there's only one act remaining, and that is your response. What is your response to the coming of Christ? What is your response to God's grace on display? What is your response to God's offer of salvation, Jesus who came to save sinners? In one way or another, in so many words, our response can really be only a couple of things. Either in these statements we recognize, I'm one of those for whom Christ came, a sinner. I too am a sinner. I am one of those in need of forgiveness. I am one of those in need of reconciliation with God. I I am one of those who wants relief from all the weight and consequences and pain of sin. I'm one of those. I'm a sinner that he came to save. Or, in so many words, I don't need this. This is not for me. it's It's an interesting story, and thank you for telling it, but it's not for me. I'm not that person. I'm not that sinner. Only to find out when we stand before the Almighty in perfect holiness, perfect justice in front of us, that we indeed were the ones that Christ came to save. But now it's too late. In refusing and rejecting Him, all that's left is righteous judgment, justice applied. What's your response to the coming of Christ? Will you you bow your head and pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you so much, first of all, for your word, that you have preserved these words for us, that you inspire these words by your spirit for us, to us. Father, we might know who you are and what you have done in this world, and we might know Christ that you sent to save us. Father, I suppose in the negative, that's so we would be without excuse, but in the positive, it's so that we would know how much you love us. that we would know that you're with us and for us and that there is hope. There is hope. And not just hope that things might get a little bit better, be a little bit different, that we might get a respite for a season, but that we might be made new, that we might be given new natures, new hearts, that we might be given a new future because we've been given a new start made new altogether, and the old things passed away. Father, we thank you for that, that by faith, trusting in you, what you have done, what you have revealed, what you offer us in Christ, we can be made new. Father, thank you for that. And Father, I pray that you remind every believer in this room of those great truths. We're not who we used to be. We're not all that we're going to be, but we certainly are not who we used to be. We've been made new. We've been made new for a reason. You purified for yourself a people as an eternal possession that we might be with you and enjoy you forever. That is our hope. 
And we need not fear what man can do to us. We need not fear what this world might turn to, for we know who has come into this world. It is you. And we know that you're coming again. Father, as we revisit the story of our Savior, renew our hope, our confidence, our courage. But Father, if there's anyone listening today, if there's someone in this room today who's not embraced Jesus as Savior, Messiah, the one sent from you to take away sin, to give new life, to rule over us perfectly in goodness, who will one day come back, set everything aright, rule over a new heaven and a new earth where everything's exactly as you intend forever and ever, and it's all good. Father, they long for that, if they long for a Savior. And Father, I pray that even now, right now, where they sit in this room, they would say, God, save me. Save me a sinner. I'm one of those ones that Jesus came to save. I need forgiveness. Father, may they trust that when Jesus came into this world, he lived perfectly so that when he died, he could live, he could die sacrificially for our sins, not for his own. And Father, may they believe even now that Jesus is not dead. We don't go to his tomb and find his remains. Father, He is raised. He's living. He's at the right hand of you, Father, interceding for all those who belong to Him. And He's coming back. He's coming back in glory. Father, may they believe that today and receive their new start, their new beginning, new life today because of Jesus. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for hope. Thank you for every promise fulfilled and every promise yet to be fulfilled. We trust in you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.